0: This is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. I'm Chad Maine, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and on today's show I'm talking to lawyer, doctor, and academic Ryan Abbott. We talk about his book, Reasonable Robot, and whether law should be AI-neutral and treat artificial intelligence and humans the same. If you use artificial intelligence to invent something, should you be able to get a patent, And if so, who owns it? Do you own it, or does the AI? To date, most courts and governmental IP offices have said, if it ain't mostly invented by a human, it isn't entitled to protection under intellectual property laws. Or what about tort law? If a driverless call injures a pedestrian, should the AI driver be held to a negligence standard just as humans would if they hit somebody? Because generally, products causing harm are judged by a strict liability standard. Or here's another one. What if AI commits a crime, say it steals some money from a bank account? Should it be held to the same standard as a human under criminal law? And how would you even do that? Because generally for a human to be guilty of a crime, they have to have mens rea. That means they knew they were doing something wrong or they mentally intended to commit a crime. Can AI even have mens rea? These are all interesting questions in the subject of a book written by today's guest, Dr. Ryan Abbott. It's called The Reasonable Robot. In the book, Dr. Abbott argues that law should be AI neutral and artificial intelligence should not be judged any differently than humans, i.e. the reasonable robot standard. He argues that maybe inventions created by AI should be entitled to protection under intellectual property laws. And he also posits that if AI causes harm, maybe it too should be judged under the same standard as a human. To say Dr. Abbott's a busy man is an understatement. He has a medical degree, he has a law degree. He practiced medicine for a while and then got into biopharmaceuticals. He got into IP law and nowadays, even though he still practices law, he is mainly a professor. He teaches at the UCLA Medical School. And oh yeah, in his spare time, he's also a mediator and an arbitrator. You have a unique background. You have a medical degree, and a legal degree. How does this come about? What was the decision to get both? And do you prefer one of them or the other?
1: Well, there aren't a lot of people who get MDJDs, and I think because it is because the skill sets really don't overlap terribly well. And as a result of this, you find people with MDJDs who are either doctors who happen to be lawyers or lawyers who happen to be doctors. And personally, I just found the law more theoretically interesting and engaging than and was more interested in practicing law than practicing medicine. Though I, you know, am licensed to do both and have done both. When I was I did a dual degree program in medicine and law, and you know, thought there were kind of three ways someone could marry those things well, you know, doing medical malpractice, which my medical colleagues wouldn't have forgiven me for <laughs> doing healthcare regulations, which I've done some of, but uh it is pretty boring to just about anybody. And then I thought biopharma IP seemed like a good combination of the two. So that's where I, you know, primarily focused out of school. And uh, it comes in handy having a medical degree for somebody who happens to be a lawyer.
0: Right. And how long did you practice?
1: Well, I'm still licensed and I still have a faculty position at the UCLA Center for East-West Medicine in the general internal medicine. You know, my day job is being an academic and an attorney and not practicing medicine. Then for a time I practiced clinically doing primary care. What about practicing law? Oh, well, practicing law is something I still do. So, you know, since
0: I passed the bar 12 years ago or so. And so you, you mentioned you, you're at UCLA now. You're also a professor of law and health sciences at the University of Surrey School of Law. You're also on, I see you're co-chair, subcommittee co-chair of the American Intellectual Property Law Association. How do you get into IP? Uh, We're going to talk about AI here in a second, but then how do you get into IP if you got this dual degree medical and legal? Well, the subcommittee stuffs, you know,
1: kind of volunteer, good citizen stuff, which I do some of. You know, the two other, you know, time-consuming things I do is I'm a partner at a law firm in Los Angeles and New York where I focus on litigation and IP litigation, and I'm a, a mediator and an arbitrator with JAMS in New York, although I have cases all over the place. How do I get into IP? Well, One of the last great monopolies for lawyers is being a patent attorney. (laughs) So, you know, I had a science background, so I was able to pass the patent bar and did that. And so, you know, again, coming out of school, thinking of doing biopharm IP, I was largely doing prosecution litigation or management of intellectual property for drug and device companies. And that was my, my initial kind of significant introduction to it.
0: So you get into AI, though, and you wrote a book on it. The, the reasonable robot. How does this happen? Is it because obviously medical was one of the first things AI was used for, but now it's moving into legal. Like, what what was it that in, that attracted you to artificial intelligence?
1: Yeah, it was thing one thing that led led to thing two. So I was doing work in biopharma IP, and AI was being used to do a lot of work in drug discovery and repurposing, which I was involved in. And it was interesting to me, you know. In particular, there was a company claiming that if you gave them your therapeutic target as a drug company that they would have an AI go through an antibody library and pick out a therapeutic compound for you to basically try and get approved as a new drug and i thought well that's interesting because you know when we have people do that they're inventors on patents and you know what if you had an ai do that sort of thing and you know the issue is is nuanced but a lot of people had thought about this over the years and, and kind of come to the conclusion well, if you ever had an AI invent something, you wouldn't need a patent because an AI wouldn't care about getting a patent. And I thought, well, that's not right. I mean, clearly the AI doesn't care about getting a patent, but it's really the drug company that cares about getting the patents, and they don't care if you have a human pharmacologist coming up with something or a supercomputer. They just need to have a patent to invest in doing clinical trials. So I pivoted out of writing about healthcare regulations, which I had said were boring, but which you know three other law professors in the world wanted to write about back and forth with me Uh, indians are writing you know this paper about you know whether we should protect ai generated inventions as they're now called and people thought it was interesting and i started looking around and and noticing you know there's actually a lot of ways in which you can have an ai behave like a person but the law treats that behavior very differently and maybe sometimes that's good but a lot of times it, it tends to have a bad outcome and maybe that's something we should rethink. And that was the genesis of the book.
0: Let's talk about that, because underlying it is this position, argument, if you will, that the law should be AI neutral, AI neutrality. So explain that. Explain what that means exactly, and then why that is, why you believe that they they shouldn't be treated any different than a human. Well, not that
1: they shouldn't be treated different than a human. It's that the behavior shouldn't be treated differently than human behavior. So. You know, the the patent context was one example, right? Like, imagine you have a drug company that says, you know, next time COVID 2025 comes along, we are licensing an AI from Microsoft that can sequence a pathogen, match it to an antibody, formulate it in a new vaccine, design clinical trials, everything we need to do to get a, a patent. You know, this is stuff that used to be very human intensive and is now increasingly automated, at least in parts. And if they could do that, that's the sort of activity you'd want the patent system to encourage, right? The drug company needs the patent to you know, invest in building innovation systems, to invest in getting new drugs approved, to disclose things they'd otherwise have to keep as trade secrets. And so even if you don't have a traditional human inventor, that really shouldn't stay out of the way of getting a patent. You know, That's something we also see right now. It's a hot topic with the writer's strike. You know, right. using AI to generate creative works through things like DALI 2 or Mid Journey or Stable Diffusion, you know, these large publicly accessible large language models, and whether we want to have copyright protection for that sort of output. But it goes in both directions. So, you know, my university is constantly trying to replace me with a chatbot, <laughs> and maybe they will, maybe they won't. But one of the kind of perverse incentives of automation is if I can get replaced with a robot, my employer saves money on taxes because you have to pay the government for the privilege of hiring someone in the U.S. in the form of payroll taxes and in the U.K. with national insurance contributions. And if you can get a machine to do my job more or less the same way, you don't have to pay those taxes. So there is an area where tax policy is encouraging businesses to automate, whereas on the patent side, you have a law that's discouraging businesses from automating you know, But in either case, not really looking at kind of what the better social outcomes are, just as something built into the law that
0: wasn't really thought through. So you mentioned two areas of the law that you talk about in your book. There's four in total. And I want to stick with IP. I want to get to tax. But in the book, this notion of AI neutrality, you lay out examples and reasons why it should apply to IP. Taxes, you mentioned, but also torts and criminals. So before we get to these other ones, I want to ask a couple more questions about the IP. So in the book, you say IP laws. We talk a lot about patent. You mentioned copyright, which are kind of similar now. They both basically require some sort of human thought, for lack of a better word, or definitely human involvement in obtaining these rights to whatever the invention is or, or the work that you're copywriting. Your position is it is that... The fact that there's not a human involved shouldn't prevent someone from getting the intellectual property rights to an invention to a work. But you also say that you've also noted that there probably have been patents out there. They're created by AI, the ideas have been been created by AI, but the humans didn't disclose that to the patent office, and the the patent ended up issuing. And you say that is not the preferred. Route to go that the patent should be in favor of the AI, the AI, the, the AI creator. Why the distinction there? Why does it matter that the, because there's definitely got to be a human involved most of the time for something to be created by AI. So why does it matter if the human didn't really disclose it they had that help?
1: Well, I mean, it's a little different with patent and copyright, you know, so we could talk about each one, but on the patent side, it's not that there's no human involved. I mean, there's always humans involved, you know. Among other things, people had to make AI systems or train them or program them and look at their output and all sorts of stuff, right? The the claim is that there is a thing that someone does that makes them an inventor. And what that thing is and how we define it varies widely by different countries. The U.S. has kind of one of the strictest requirements for someone being an inventor, which is that you conceive of the invention, which is basically that you have a mental image of the entire operative invention in your head, and if you contribute to the conception of any claim of an invention, that you're an inventor. Other jurisdictions are a lot vaguer on what makes someone an invention. Right now, if you have an AI that can automate the conception of an invention in the way that we have AI that can now routinely automate the generation of a creative work, Again, it's not that there weren't people involved. It's just there wasn't someone who was a traditional inventor and that work was done by an AI. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. In the United States, having an incorrect inventor in an application can render an invention invalid or unenforceable. And the patent office wouldn't know about this unless you went and told them, like we did in our test case. But if you were suing to enforce a patent, let's say you were Pfizer suing a generic company for a new COVID vaccine. You know, the lawyer representing the generics company would ask the inventor at Pfizer, you know, how did you come up with this? And if the inventor said, well, you know, I use this AI that I licensed from Microsoft. I don't really know how the AI works. And it generated and modeled the performance of 300 virtual molecules. And I don't know how it made them and I don't know how it modeled them, but I know that it told me that this candidate was the best performing one, so I gave this to our patent attorneys and they filed for it. You might well lose your patent at that point. So not disclosing it's a problem for that reason, then kind of on the moral rights issue of it, should I be allowed to take credit for work that I haven't done? I mean, it's not unfair to an AI, of course, which doesn't care if you take credit.
0: But you also point out, though, too, to that point, that why should you be able to take credit for something you didn't come up with? You do point out, too, that companies... Pfizer. They can own a patent, and that maybe was a team of people that came up with that. So what's the distinction there? I mean, a company's relying on its people, and they're using computers too, I'm sure.
1: Well, no. At the end of the day, the company would be the entity that owns the patent, whether or not it's invented by an AI or a person. So, you know, an AI isn't a legal person. It couldn't own property. It couldn't own a patent. Plus, that wouldn't make a lot of sense for a variety of reasons. I mean, at the end of the day, Pfizer still owns the patent. The point is that there's a disclosure requirement for a variety of reasons about how something was made, right? Who or what invented the thing?
0: That's the distinction I'm trying to draw, though. If Pfizer sues a generic and they say, well, we ran a bunch of tests using Microsoft AI and OpenAI and stuff, and this is the best thing. Explain the distinction for, in your mind, the best wah for patent given to AI versus the company used people. The human used a tool to, cr- to create the patent. So the company relied on something else, people, the human in this generic situation relied on something else, a computer. What's the distinction there? Why is one different than the other? Well, if
1: I understood the question, my argument is essentially that it really shouldn't be treated differently. That in either case, however the thing was made, you would just get a patent on it full stop. Now, most of the time, what everyone cares about patents is ownership and entitlement, right? Like, Pfizer doesn't care who's listed on their patent because as long as it's correct or they've made a good faith effort to be correct, inventorship is usually irrelevant, although there can be all sorts of cases when that's not the case, but it usually is. Still, we require that an inventor be disclosed, and not every country does that. Austria and Israel, for example, do not require that. But the reason why it is typically disclosed, aside from kind of clarifying ownership and chain of title, is that it is considered a acknowledgement of something inventive someone does, and it is kind of credit they are getting for being listed as an inventor, you know, and that may have reputational benefits for someone like, you know, I was a research scientist advisor for thirty years, and I invented, you know, Paxloven and you know, twenty other compounds, and here I am on the patents, and maybe I get a cut of that, and maybe I don't, but you know that I've been prolific, or I'm an academic at Stanford. I'm on 50 patents, and they all belong to Stanford, and maybe I have some sort of royalty agreement with them, but the point is, you know, I'm a prolific inventor. If I can just prompt an AI to invent stuff for me and then put, you know, Ryan Abbott invented this on it, and overnight I can file 5,000 patents, become the world's most prolific inventor, there's an argument, at least I'd make the argument, that that kind of isn't transparent and kind of discredits legitimate human ingenuity by me taking credit for work I just asked a machine to perform
0: so in that situation who if anyone or anything should own the patent patents so just to be clear you know the ai would never own a patent would be the company right or the or the developer right it would
1: always be the company right now now if you do have an ai invent a patent you know the question does come up well who owns the thing and you have a couple options for that you know the person who programmed the ai who owns the ai who used the ai I argue that it makes most sense to have the AI owner own it the same way, you know, if I own a 3D printer that makes a painting, I own that physical painting. If I own a creative or inventive AI that makes creative or inventive output, I should be in that output as well. And it would most encourage owners to share access to their AI. But, you know, ultimately, the economists tell us, as long as we've got a good, clear default rule, then when parties are negotiating, like Microsoft's negotiating with Pfizer about who will own when comes out of its AI if you use it for drug discovery? The parties will just contract to the arrangement they prefer.
0: When we come back in just a couple moments, Dr. Abbott explains why maybe torts caused by AI should be judged under a negligence standard and not strict liability, as is usually the case under product liability law. We also discussed whether AI and humans should be treated the same under criminal law. I'm Chad Mayne, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. Let's we'll switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about Tor because I, for me personally, that the IP stuff is very compelling. But your arguments here with the tort law, and you raise some really, really interesting points that people are going to need to grapple with. But let me just paraphrase, and you correct me where, where I'm wrong here. You point out that humans are judged by the reasonable person standard, i.e. negligence. You also point out that products, which AI is, are generally in a court of law, in a civil lawsuit, judged by a strict liability standard. Where basically, you know, if the product's defective, the company's liable for designing it that way. But you have two interesting things here. Number one is, you point out, especially for the driverless cars, that using AI is and will be safer for many pursuits, including driving. So at some point, it may be negligence if humans don't use AI to do whatever the task is. In this situation, you bring up driverless cars a lot. And you say, ultimately, maybe humans should be judged by this reasonable robot standard. The strict liability thing is also interesting because you say maybe AI shouldn't be judged by strict liability anymore because it's similar to human thinking. There's human input in there and maybe it should be judged by a negligence standard. So I want you to expound on both of those and why you think that way.
1: Sure. Well, and I appreciate you. You thought it was interesting. So <laughs> I've got a self driving Tesla now, and I can assure you it's not safer than me. If anything, my 16 year old who's now studying to get her learners from it is significantly safer than that car. But in principle, it does seem to me that 10 years from now, that won't be the case. The point is this I can cause an accident in exactly the same way as my self driving Tesla. And for Those two injuries will be evaluated under two different legal standards. And this is another case in which where you have the same exact behavior causing the same exact injury, having two different standards leads to some perverse outcomes. You know, so for one, if strict liability is a higher standard than negligence, then it discourages things that are evaluated under strict liability. And that won't be a good system if self-driving cars are going to be safer than people, which they are going to be, right? Because it will want to keep companies from using something that's safer.
0: Specifically, when you point out, it discourages the behavior that strict liability is there to promote. And I, that is making safer products because if a company sees that they're going to be liable for the way they designed it, they're going to fix it. They're going to be more apt to fix it. Well, precisely.
1: And you know, it also makes sense to evaluate under a negligence framework because you're really comparing. The behavior of a self driving car, or we should be against the behavior of a human driver. Like, did he run a red light and hit someone? If so, you know, that would have been negligent for a human driver, would have been negligent for a self driving car. The other thing that's interesting is as you play this out, AI is going to continue improving in its performance, and human drivers will not, right? And anyone who's driven can tell you how terrible other human drivers are other than themselves. (laughs) So eventually, regardless of the liability standard we apply, Self driving cars are going to be cheaper for people to use from a liability perspective because they're going to so rarely cause accidents. And it kind of won't matter what liability framework we have, even if it's automatically liable for any accident, just because it's going to cause so few accidents. By contrast, human drivers, you know, in the United States, cause 30 or 40,000 deaths a year and more than a million worldwide. And so really at that point, what you've got is someone having the option between a perfectly safe self-driving car and a terribly unsafe human driver. Maybe the law should be doing something about that. One thing we might do is say, well, we're just not going to let people drive anymore. It's too dangerous. On the other hand, and Elon Musk suggested that at one point, the disadvantage of that is it starts you know, robbing people of their freedom and autonomy to do things. So I don't know that we want to have a rule that says you can't drive, you know, but on the other hand, as a pedestrian, I shouldn't be responsible for the cost of an accident if you're choosing to put yourself and other people in danger by driving when you could be automating. So if self-driving cars become the standard way that people travel and someone chooses to drive and causes an accident, I think the reasonable person standard is then essentially based on the standard mode of transportation, which would be. A self-driving car, if you cause an accident that a self-driving car wouldn't have caused, you would be liable for it. And so this wouldn't keep you from driving, but it would internalize the cost of accidents on human drivers who choose the unsafe alternative.
0: Let's go back to the strict liability. You're of the position that if you continue to hold AI, the makers of AI, the developers of AI to that strict liability standard, they'll have less incentive to improve than if they were held to a negligence standard. Why is that? Why do you believe that? less less incentive to improve i think they have plenty of incentives to
1: improve there will be a counter incentive to deploying the technology right so let's say you're uber and you've got a choice between a human driver who if they cause an accident is liable directly at negligence or employing a self-driving tesla where either uber or tesla would be liable in strict liability for causing the same accident right so if you have higher liability costs Associated with the automation option, it pushes you to not automating. And that isn't a good outcome if the self driving car is safer. And we're discouraging people from adopting a safer technology than what we have right now. And if the self driving car isn't safer than a human driver, then the accidents it causes, Tesla should be liable for under a negligence framework anyway. Again, car fails to stop at a red light and hits a pedestrian under a negligence standard they'd be liable too and when we evaluate people on a negligence standard it is very rarely the case that we look at their subjective state of mind why did you run a red light what were you thinking it is more would a reasonable human driver have run that red light and hit that pedestrian and if the answer is no that's the end of it you know and courts long ago decided it it was too difficult to administer a subjective standard and also unfair to pedestrians because it doesn't matter what you were thinking it doesn't matter if you were an above average or a below average driver everyone has a right to assume a certain standard of conduct and that's what we'd have with a uniform standard
0: and then finally in the book you talk about ai neutrality ai legal neutrality for criminal law how would that even work because humans definitely for the foreseeable future think differently than than ai does and if you, ai as you point out in your book can we prove mens rea, right? It didn't, it probably didn't intend to create the crime. right?
1: So the criminal law chapter was, was a bit more of a thought experiment, but, you know, essentially it was asking whether or not it would make any sense to think about criminal law in the context of an AI. And it came to a couple of conclusions, you know, and criminal law, I think was the right area to focus on this because most of the law, I would argue has pretty utilitarian goals. Right. So not that we don't sometimes care about the ontological things and, you know, IP law or torts or taxes, but we generally don't. So by that, I mean, the purpose of patent law is to incentivize innovation, promote commercialization of new products and encourage disclosure of trade secrets. Right. And really what someone was thinking or thinking at all really has very little to do with that. Or like the tax system is designed to have certain economic incentives and to spread wealth, promote distributional fairness, and so forth. So again, someone's state of mind is really very irrelevant to that, which makes it easier to compare AI and human behavior when we can just focus on the behavior. Criminal law is different than that because criminal law, really more than any other area of the law, we do say we care what people are thinking for it, you know, hence the whole mens rea concept. Of course, though, criminal law in the United States does admit the existence of artificial entities for criminal punishment. So you can have corporate liability for the commission of crimes, right? We do already allow that. And the chapter argues you could change the law to have criminal liability for an AI, and it wouldn't violate any of the fundamental precepts of the law, in that the law already accommodates kind of non-human concepts of mens rea. And it does that through a variety of you know, legal doctrines, such as Respondent Superior, where we impute the states of mind of people onto things. We have strict liability crimes where we don't care about someone's mens rea, where they're you know, criminally liable one way or the other. Or you know, it would be possible to construct essentially an artificial concept of mens rea based on behavior, and there are some areas where we do that. The book also says, though, that while the law could do this, it wouldn't make any sense or it wouldn't at least be a good idea, right? It's not that you couldn't change the law to have, for example, an AI own a patent, but just that it wouldn't make a lot of sense. I mean, what would an AI do with a patent? It wouldn't care about getting it. It couldn't commercialize it, at least not without going to extraordinary difficult lengths to create some sort of decentralized autonomous organization online and have the AI operate through code. I mean, in any way that you look at it, It just makes more sense to have the owner of the AI own the intellectual property, to have the AI tortfeasor's manufacturer liable for any torts that it caused. And similarly, if we, you know, get to the point where we have AI kind of autonomously committing what we think of as criminal activities, you know, to have the manufacturers liable for any criminal activity by an AI. That's a bit on the criminal law theory, but it is, it's a bit more philosophical than the other chapters, which are a little more straightforward. You know, for those of us who've been interested in AI for a while, it's been exciting In the past couple of years to really see the advances in AI capabilities, because while it's going to be economically and socially disruptive for the law, it takes what has been kind of long time academic discourse and suddenly gives it a real practical utility, especially now we're seeing right now in the copyright space. But uh, good times to be interested in the field.
0: Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.